1818, Victor Frankenstein zapped consciousness into a being of his own creation. And since then, our obsession with artificial intelligence has never really stopped. From how... I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. To the Terminator... I'll be back. To the Matrix... Only a human mind could invent something as insipid as love. We never really get tired of imagining the ways that advanced technology could do us in. And it's really no wonder why when we get news like this. Drones are being effectively used in the war in Ukraine, and now the Pentagon has announced the new initiative dubbed Replicator. It would turn out thousands of autonomous systems like drones and unmanned aircrafts over the next two years. A few months ago, the U.S. government announced that it intended to develop autonomous AI drone swarms for use in battle. We are in a persistent generational competition for advantage in which we cannot take military superiority for granted. But when we hear about plans for a future with weapon-wielding, thinking for themselves, flying killer robots, well, it can be hard to know what to make of it. Why is it happening? And what does it really mean? We kind of wanted to know. And so did you. All season, we've been bringing you stories about the internet and security. But we've also been asking our friends and family, and all of you listening, to send us your questions. So today, we're going to answer them. Or at least some of them. From killer drones to facial recognition to monitoring nuclear test sites, we've got experts locked in and ready to help make sense of this wild world. Welcome to the Mailbag episode. I'm Lacey Healy, and this is Things That Go Boom. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry, to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts. On August 28, 2023, the Pentagon announced its new Replicator initiative. Enter the first question in our mailbag. Hey, things like Koboom. My name is Jared Thompson, based out of Bellevue, Washington, and I had a question for you. Should I be worried about the announcement from the government that they plan to use autonomous drone swarms on the battlefield? What do you think? Thanks. And to answer this one, we called up Lauren. I'm Lauren Kahn. I'm a senior research analyst at the Center for Security and Emerging Technology based at Georgetown, where I focus on defense innovation and military applications of artificial intelligence. What would you say to that question? Yeah. The replicator announcement makes use of low cost, highly attributable, which means this like kind of cheap, affordable, not so precious system that they can use in greater quantities together. The program isn't only about swarms, but they are the part that's getting the most attention right now, probably for obvious reasons. But Lauren said that the definition of a swarm is still kind of hazy. I'm not sure if there's a certain number that requires what consists of a swarm. Is it two? Is it three? Is it four? But that they're able to operate together and to communicate with one another. I'm sure you've seen like the, the drone light shows. So essentially something like that, where they're communicating with each other to achieve some sort of end goal. 
And one benefit of this new program could be that these drones are, relatively speaking, easy to replace. But maybe the more important part of deciding how worried or not worried to be about this drone swarms announcement is that these drones won't be fully autonomous. There will still be pilots operating them from afar. But these people might each be controlling a lot of drones at once. Like the ratio of how many humans to drones is not necessarily established yet, but it just means that it enables fewer humans to operate these systems. At least from my understanding from the U.S., there's not going to be systems that are selecting and engaging targets autonomously without human intervention. That would require additional review. There are current policies in place that the Department of Defense has, primarily Directive 3000.09, which kind of governs these sorts of systems. And to my knowledge, and at least as of 2021, I don't think that had been triggered yet. But to be clear, we are talking about arming these smaller and cheaper drones, potentially flying in swarms with weapons. I think you already see the systems being used with payloads. But again, with this replicator initiative, it seems like there's more of a focus on these more cheap, attributable systems and how those will be used in communications with one another. But I would say even, you know, the discussions of lethal autonomous weapons, those have not, to my knowledge, been put through the review process yet. The hindrance isn't the technology. The technologies exist. There's already robots and systems that they use in farming and agriculture, for example, to target and get rid of invasive species or diseased almonds. I've seen, you know, where they inject lethal sailing into starfish. So those are lethal autonomous weapons, just not for humans or not for any other kind of military target. So robot death technology for humans isn't on the table yet. But drones are being used on the battlefield in places like Ukraine. And some of those drones aren't so different from what you might pick up at Costco. Ukraine has been really successful, I would say, in using advances and capitalizing on advances in emerging technologies, specifically commercial technologies. And so because they're so affordable and so versatile, you can use them in a lot of new ways. And so Ukraine has demonstrated that pretty successfully with the use of AI, for example, Clearview AI for facial recognition technology. They're using off-the-shelf drones. And so you can see that there are new use cases for lots of these systems that are not necessarily different from these really exquisite, really expensive, very highly capable military systems. You can use sort of cheaper versions for different things. For better or worse, the introduction of these much cheaper drone systems marks a big shift in American military strategy. Historically, in the 1970s, when the United States was kind of looking at the Soviet Union, it noticed that it really couldn't compete with the mass of the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And so it emphasized this sort of policy called the second offset, where it realized that it couldn't counter the Soviet Union's mass. So it decided to emphasize really exquisite, really expensive, technically superior systems. So one really amazing system that could do a lot of different things. And that worked for a good amount of time. That's historically what the United States has invested in. It's invested in these really expensive, large systems, famously the F-35, that can do all of the things that it needs to do. Yeah, sometimes too many things, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that, while it's versatile, that also means that when you lose one of those, as somewhat happened recently, it's a big deal. You know, really damage the war fighting effort or how you perform on the battlefield. Now, with new geopolitical tensions rising and with the pacing challenge set by China, we have this question again of mass and what does it mean and how the U.S. is going to respond. And I think that they've decided it and have noticed that maybe necessarily having too many just exquisite systems isn't necessarily the most 
fruitful way forward. So there's been an attempt to kind of locate a better spot on this cost curve between, you know, how precise and beautiful can the system be, how, how elaborate and expensive, and how like cheap and it just gets the job done. But cheap or not, in the end, whether or not a technology is scary really comes down to the rules that we set for how it can be used. So again, the barrier here isn't really the technology or what's the realm of the possible, it's just the realm of what will states do and is it actually useful militarily? Is it in their best interest? Does it make sense for them to adopt these capabilities? Since February 2023, the United States released its political declaration on the responsible use of AI and autonomy and military systems in general. The idea behind that was to get other states to sign on as well to things such as committing to not having, um, you know, an autonomous system or an AI, for example, in control of uh, nuclear weapons decisions. So that has been already like pretty clearly established and hopefully we'll see in the next few months of other states begin to sign on. Okay, speaking of regulation, let's rewind a second. For example, Clearview AI for facial recognition technology, they're using off-the-shelf drones. AI facial recognition on drones also sounds pretty scary. And Clearview AI just so happens to be part of our next listener question. This is Alex from Los Angeles. My question is about facial recognition technology, and specifically the use of facial recognition technology in Madison Square Garden. So I think having facial recognition technology used for that purpose is probably a bad thing. But like, is there any kind of good reason to use facial recognition technology? But like, also, what are we really giving up here by having this technology? Like, please help me understand what the heck is going on here. Thanks. To help us tackle this one, we brought in Dr. Eleni Manis. I'm the research director at the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. First, what are we even talking about? If you're not an avid Knicks fan, you might have missed the controversy. James Dolan is this guy who owns a bunch of venues, places like Madison Square Garden and Radio City Music Hall. And for a while now, he's been setting up cameras and facial recognition systems at these places, which is actually becoming fairly common around the country. So why would a venue bother to invest in expensive facial recognition systems, which could then be repurposed and misused by law enforcement? One common evolving use is to use facial recognition to get into a venue. You can use your face as your ticket at certain venues. And this is a way that facial recognition, other kinds of surveillance technologies are becoming normalized. This is similar to how you might use your face print to unlock your phone. But this story came to our attention and to this listener because Dolan's been using this tech to keep his, quote, enemies from seeing, say, a basketball game or a Billy Joel concert. Any lawyer who works for a firm that's suing Dolan, and there are a lot of them, has their photo loaded into the system, and they can then be turned away if the camera IDs them trying to get in. Under New York State civil rights law, people who are behaving well and who are above the age of 21 can't be refused from public venues. But sports stadiums are an exception. So there's a loophole in the law that actually allows James Dolan to exclude people from Madison Square Garden. I think he also refused to let one lawyer accompany her daughter and and Girl Scout troop to see the Rockettes. That would seem to be illegal. And getting back to our original question, companies and venues and police departments don't tend to advertise these systems as fun ways for rich people to exact petty revenge. 
they say that AI facial recognition systems are good for security. So are they? Should we want this tech in stadiums and other public areas to maybe help stop a terrorist attack? So I think the idea of using facial recognition to locate the needle in a haystack terrorist is just a way to distract our attention. It's a common cover story that law enforcement uses when it wants to introduce a powerful new toy, a stingray, right, a cell tower uh, simulator, a cell phone hacker, this or that tracker. They say it'll be used against their really, really bad guys. Then the technology gets used against the same old over-policed communities, black and brown people, protesters, LGBTQ plus people, undocumented Americans, Muslim Americans. And honestly, a great cover story for collaborating with law enforcement would be to say, we're also scanning for known terrorists. So I think there's no place for racial recognition in stadiums or other public venues. Where are the laws on this? How close are we to actually having something that would be meaningful? There are a few states like Illinois, that have laws that regulate facial recognition. Illinois actually allows individuals to sue, gives them a private right of action if facial recognition is misused. But honestly, we are not far enough. Surveillance cameras are everywhere. That footage is frequently fed into facial recognition systems. And we are always on camera. So if the laws aren't there to support shutting down this use of AI, could we convince the companies to change how they use this stuff? We don't actually know what Madison Square Garden is using, which is so troublesome. James Dolan did do a Clearview AI pilot, right? They tested it, but we don't know what they're using. Bothers me as a privacy advocate because I don't know what the privacy policies are of the organizations of the companies. We may not know the privacy policies, but we do know that no matter the system, facial recognition technology is pretty famously far from perfect. It consistently fails to identify women, people of color, younger people, older people, many people in everyday circumstances. When used by law enforcement, it's typically abused. So facial recognition companies would like you to hold out for a 99% match. Law enforcement, when looking for any match, might lower the threshold to something like 80% certainty or 70% certainty, which means that a lot of black and brown people are being arrested for no reason. On a broad scale, this is a problem that some of us with greater privilege just don't have to worry about. But that doesn't mean we're immune. I was at the supermarket recently buying myself a six-pack of really delicious raspberry lambic. And I was unaware that facial recognition was being used to check my age. I am twice of age, but the camera was unable to ascertain that And so somebody came over and checked my ID. I guess I should be flattered, but I was honestly disturbed to realize that age recognition was being used on footage of my face without my knowledge. I mean, presuming this grocery store was in compliance with New York State law, there would have been a sign somewhere saying that facial recognition was being used for this purpose, but I certainly didn't see it. Eleni knows that it's hard to avoid and, in some cases, impossible to avoid having your face scanned into these systems. It's really not individuals' problem to solve. This is a societal problem. We need policymakers and legislators to step up and outlaw the use of facial recognition in public places. And we need tech companies 
to make more protective policies and not to demand your face print as the thing of convenience that will unlock your phone. Now, I do have a lot of sympathy for individuals in this environment where so many conveniences come with a little extra bit of surveillance, a little extra bit of personal data that you've already handed over in five other different places. The solution to this is really, really, really policy-oriented, right, to structural changes. People always have this kind of question, like, how the hell did we get to 30,000 nuclear weapons in the Cold War? And the answer is like, one at a time. After the break, we ask Dr. Jeffrey Lewis, why are nuclear test sites getting busier? And how can you tell? I am Dr. Jeffrey Lewis. I'm a professor at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, and I am the host of a new podcast called The Reason We're All Still Here. I study the further spread of nuclear weapons, largely using what we call new tools, but what maybe normal people call open source information, like commercial satellite photographs. Which makes Jeffrey just the perfect person to answer our last listener question. This one comes from Christina Backstrom from Oakland, California. Hey, things that go boom. There have been reports of increased activity spotted on satellite imagery at nuclear sites in China, Russia, and the U.S. And I'm wondering, what should we make of this? Yeah, we are, to use the term popularized by Senator Fetterman, the Jagoffs who noticed the increased activity at the Russian and Chinese nuclear test sites. We published it, by the way noting the increase in activity at the U.S. test site, which is of a different character than the Russian and Chinese test sites. And some people are very annoyed with us for lumping these three together. But I think the activity at all three helps answer the question what we should make of it, which is all three countries, I think, have people who want to conduct nuclear tests. All three countries are doing experiments that are not nuclear tests, but need to be done at nuclear test sites, and they want to keep doing those. All three countries believe the others are using those experiments to do secret teeny tiny nuclear tests, which then very conveniently feeds into the people who want to do big nuclear tests because they're like, well, they're already doing it. We should do it too. I think the fact that the United States is not going to ratify the CTBT and the relations are shitty means that the people in Russia and China who want to do nuclear tests are in the ascendance. And I think they are making really good use of arguments about how the relationship is bad and how the U.S. must be secretly testing, which, to be clear, it is not, in order to build support. So I think there's a really good chance that one of the three, probably Russia, is going to conduct a test and then the other two will follow shortly thereafter. Atmospherically? No. Underground. I think it'll all be underground. Yeah. I think it depends, obviously, on who's in power. Right. Elections have consequences. I I think that a Republican president probably won't think twice about it. I think a Democratic president will think twice, but you kind of never know what you're going to get. You know, why not start testing again? So I I think it would be fuel for the arms race. And I think the reason I think the U.S. should stay out of it is like we don't actually need newer, new is a weird word, better, different nuclear weapons like 
if we'd had a nuclear war in the 1960s with 1960s nuclear weapons, like, everybody's going to fucking die. Right. So it's like... Doesn't really matter. I don't see a huge strategic advantage to testing in terms of, like, the capabilities you could develop. And I do see, like, all the downsides of, you know, arms races are not actually, I think, fundamentally about, like, well, they have something a little better and we have to counter it. Because I think that's a kind of a, basically a race to nowhere. It's the old um, Paul Warnke article, right? With two apes on a treadmill. The only victory in such a race is being the first off the treadmill. So, like, in this case, we're both, like, neither of us are on. And, like, the Russians are, you know, lacing up their sneakers. And I'm like, I just, like, don't. Just don't get on. Yeah, don't do it. Tell me how your team discovered this activity. And and how does that look different, or does it look different, when you're looking at other countries versus looking at the U.S.? So we look at test sites all the time. And in fact, in the case of China, a different set of analysts noticed some of the changes first and called our attention to them. But really what, what we do is we have research projects where we look at each of these test sites and we try to characterize them. And then you look for change. And sometimes the change you see is really boring. Like, oh, look, at some more trucks. And, you know, trucks could mean anything. But then sometimes you're like, are you digging out a bigger tunnel or are you fixing this facility? And so when you get a change like that, then you have to characterize it. And what really struck us was the volume of activity in both Russia and China had really kind of increased a lot in the last couple of years. And, you know, it wasn't sudden. It kind of ticked up and then it ticked up some more and then it ticked up some more. And it's a little hard on like a year by year basis. But just the reality is, if you're the Russians and the Chinese and you look at the U.S. test site, you see the same thing. Now, having said that, and I have to give the Department of Energy credit, they have suggested transparency visits. Like, if you don't believe us, come look. And the Russians and the Chinese so far have, like, not taken them up on that. Largely, I think, because they don't want to do the reciprocal visit. So you can draw whatever conclusion you want from that difference. I'm proud of the Department of Energy for making that offer. And I think it says a lot that the Russians and the Chinese don't take us up on it. On the other hand, and this is no criticism of the current DOE, but, like, historically... Some of us were making this argument like, you know, 10, 15 years ago. I don't want to imply that the U.S. offer is insincere or is somehow not enough. I think it's great. It's I've been begging them to do it for years. I just wish their predecessors 10 or 15 years ago had listened. What's changed in your experience? Just the administration or is there more to it now that makes it more possible? So I think it's two things. I think the Biden administration is just a little more forward-leaning on these issues. Then I think also, and this is very American, 10 or 15 years ago when the Russian and Chinese test sites were quiet, and I was saying, like, look, the Russians and the Chinese think that we're preparing to test. We should probably invite them to reassure them. I think administrations looked at what was happening in Russia and China and said, well, they don't really seem that worked up because they're not doing anything. Now, I think they look and they see, because I can see it in the commercial side, so I have, you know, I can only imagine what the classified side looks like. So I think they're probably alarmed and they're like, oh, holy crap, they are alarmed. So I think that makes a difference. But, you know, the problem is if you wait that long, and again, it's different people making the decision. So it's not like one person just waited too long. But by the time the people who come into power who are like, oh, yeah, this is an issue, we should do something about it. We're already pretty far down this process. The public availability of the type of information that allowed Jeffrey and his team to make these discoveries, it's also changed a lot over time. But folks like Jeffrey have been finding ways to monitor nuclear test sites for years. So, you know, one example is Vertic, this organization in the UK, 
realized that they could do real-time seismic monitoring just like you do for earthquakes. All they had to do was be focused on the area where China would do a nuclear test. And this is in like the early 90s. And so they basically set up this computer program that would like dial in with a modem and like check a database of seismic results like every few minutes. And they'd set it up so it would like on like an old timey ring phone, like ring in their house, all with the goal of being able to detect and announce a Chinese nuclear test before the Chinese did. So like you could do it, except it was this massive effort. Whereas today, what you would literally do is you would go to the U.S. Geologic Survey and you would draw a little box on a map. And it would say, like, do you want earthquake notifications for this box? And you were like, yes. And it's like, what is your email? And you type it in and they just email it to you. So, you know, I would say intelligence agencies did this stuff in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And it's just that this stuff is now commercial. And really because of computers, it's just easier. Yeah. And there were also awesome people out there doing awesome things, trying to, like, dig up this kind of information, no matter when you're talking about. Yeah. Are these some of the awesome people we might talk about on your new show? Oh, my God. That is exactly the segue I was hoping you would make, because, yes. (laughs) So we have a new podcast called The Reason We're All Still Here, which is six episodes. It will be seven when the live episode drops, I guess. But six episodes about people who are not part of any government who stick their nose into what people normally think of as the government's business. Mm -hmm. And they do it because governments are, you know, crap at cooperating. And they often need an example to follow, Mm -hmm. or maybe they need to be shamed a little or pushed, or just sometimes they don't have the capacity. And so it all starts with my favorite story, which is the Black Sea Experiment, which is in the middle of the Cold War, in the 80s, bunch of scientists loosely organized around the Natural Resources Defense Council managed to get on a Soviet warship with a gamma detector and take measurements of an actual Soviet nuclear weapon to prove that you could verify an arms control treaty. That's amazing. The Soviets let them on a ship. How did they get on? The Soviets invited them. They just... (laughs) It's an incredible story. Yeah. But this is exactly why I find these stories so appealing, right? Because here we are, right? We're looking at the Russians and the Chinese moving toward testing. And like, we're all screaming, like, please don't freaking do this. And it feels like you feel powerless and helpless, right? Like, what the hell can I do to stop these big powers from doing this ultimately self-destructive stuff? And Tom Cochran at NRDC in particular had been going to the Soviet Union and had been working with this Soviet scientist named Evgeny Velikov, who only later he will realize is an advisor to, at the time, an up-and-coming Politburo member named Mikhail Gorbachev. So, like, that shit pays off, right? (laughs) Right. And Tom, you know Tom, right? Not everybody knows Tom. Tom is, like, yes, he has this gentle quality. Right. But he's also the kind of person who goes to the Soviet Union and is like, you should let me put seismic monitors at your test site. You know, and they're like, why the hell would we do that? And it's like, because the Americans don't trust you and we can show that we could build trust. And, you know, you have to have a little bit of gumption to do that kind of thing. And somehow, Tom talked the Soviets into a series of these things. Uh, Monitoring their test site was one. But to me, the wildest one was there was a debate that said, 
you could never verify an arms control agreement that related to nuclear weapons at sea because the Soviets would never let an inspector come look at the nuclear weapons on a warship. And Tom was like, is that is that true? Would you not let me take a gamma ray detector on one of your warships? And freaking Velikov was like, yeah, no, I would, I would let you do that. I love that. And they did it, you know. So Steve Fetter, who's on my committee, was like a 20-something postdoc at the time. And so, yeah, like Steve actually is the one who took the measurement. Speaking of measurement, we had one final question. And we're going to admit this one came from us. See, I run and I really like Strava. So I was curious, are there any updates on smartwatches in the military? That is, since the incident in 2018 when that same fitness tracking app accidentally revealed the locations of military bases, not to mention the exercise habits of a bunch of U.S. soldiers. I haven't seen anything on Strava in a while, but I do think that whole universe of big data is pretty interesting. I mean, the reality is, is that there is so much data about individuals out there now. You know, I think in Russia, we saw there was a big compromise of the Russian equivalent of Uber Eats. Uh-huh. I mean, no joke, because yeah. think about the information you might give to a driver if you were ordering food and it needed to get into a sensitive facility. That's true. I mean, you wouldn't just walk outside. Well, I mean, <laughs> you might say that. Yeah. You might say, well, there is a security hut and you're not going to be able to get past. So when you get to the security hut, ask for the secret nuclear-powered cruise missile group. I'm making that example up. <gasps> right. Yeah. What I would say about all of that data, whether it's the fitness apps or food apps or really just information you put on social media, the way I look at this era we live in is we are living in an era of data ubiquity. I carry my phone around everywhere. It tracks my every movement. It records my every whim as I search for things. And so there is a pattern of my life that exists on my phone. And if I start doing weird stuff, you would know immediately. Yeah. Right? If I began spying for the Chinese consulate, like suddenly I'm going to the Chinese consulate twice a week. A little suspicious. Like, what am I doing? Am I turning off my phone when I park next to the Chinese consulate? Like, that's a total change in my behavior. Yeah. And so we see that in many, many ways. So in the case of Strava, the fitness app, what you saw is people exercising in places where you didn't expect to see people exercising. Right? You knew what normal looked like, and all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> wait, why are you doing loops in the middle of this desert? And then you look at it and you're like, oh, because there's an airbase there. Like, oh, wow, surprise. People do it with ships. If you think about when you drive from one place to another, it takes you a certain period of time. So ships that do ship-to-ship transfers go out into the ocean and then they stop for long periods of time and they come back. Mm -hmm. That's not a normal shipping pattern. Mm -hmm. So you can detect that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and we do it with satellite imagery. You know, we look at vehicle traffic and just activity on the ground and we know what normal looks like. And if suddenly there's a change, like a bunch of construction at a nuclear test site that's been quiet for 10 years, you know, you have this kind of awareness. We live in a world in which we have all this data about the patterns that tell us what normal is. And we're looking for these little deviation. So yeah, there hasn't been anything big 
and public like Strava or maybe the Russian food delivery service in a couple of years. But that doesn't mean it's not out there. It just means it hasn't broken yet. Because if you are carrying your cell phone around, you are making the data that's going to be in the next story. Thank you so much to Jeffrey, Eleni, and Lauren for these great answers. They're all part of organizations that have tons of resources for more information. And we'll link to those in our show notes. And thanks to all of you for sharing your questions with us. This was a lot of fun for us to do, so we might actually do it again. If you have a new question or one that we didn't get to, you can always ask us at boom at inkstickmedia.com. This is the last episode of our internet and security season. We're so sad. But we will be back for season nine of Things That Go Boom in the new year. So stick around. We'll see you then. Things That Go Boom is distributed by Inkstick Media and PRX. Thanks for listening. And if you've enjoyed the season, leave us a review. They really do help folks find our little show out there on the big wide web. This episode was produced by Nikki Galtaland and me and edited by Katie Toth and Sahar Khan. The music for our show is written by Darian Shulman. And Robin Wise makes each episode sound its very best. Thank you, as always, to the supporters and the foundations that make our work possible. The Carnegie Corporation of New York and Plowshares Fund, as well as Inkstick supporters, including the Cologne Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, Prospect Hill Foundation, and the Jubitz Family Foundation. And thank you, as always, to all of you for being along for the ride. We'll see you next season. Let me tell you, Facebook can tell the difference between myself and James Acton like nobody's business. <laughs> but, you know, show me a 75-year-old Korean man and his, like, 25-year-old grandson, and Facebook's like, I, I don't know. They're both Kim Jong-un. Yeah. <laughs>